Warning. The Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my fellow creatives. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast celebrating creativity, the creative class, and creative culture worldwide. I'm your host, Sourdough, and on today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by conceptual artist and fellow podcaster, by the way, who has a new show coming up on Friday, September 27th at 7.30 at the Studio Channel Islands Art Center in Camarillo. Camarillo? Am I saying that right? Camarillo? Camarillo, <laughs> California. I went to public school. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I am pleased to welcome the one and only Miss Art World, Catherine Cooksey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited that you're here. Oh, yeah. You're classing up the joint, Miss oh. Art World. <laughs> Well, good. <laughs> I don't think that's true. How was uh, so? How are you feeling about your show coming up? You know, have you ever had a time in your life where your eye twitches like oh, nonstop? Yeah. It's twitching right now. <laughs> well, so mine has been twitching for the past week because I'm stressed out. I'm excited, but I'm also very stressed. I feel like I'm inviting people to a birthday party, and I don't know if anyone's actually going to show up. so there's like anxiety that my art won't turn out the way i want it to but then also no one will come because if they don't come it's a horror movie right Right? like (laughs) it's supposed to be an art film (laughs) yeah well i'm sure i know i will be there so you'll have you know me (laughs) well and i have a very very supportive large family so I know that at least my Excellent. family will be there. So you have a lot of siblings? When you say large family, lots of cousins? What? Lots of co- So I'm one of four. Mm-hmm. And then I have lots of cousins and a lot of people that still live in Cam- yeah, in Camarillo and LA area. So Yeah. So you have four siblings. Are you the oldest, middle, youngest? Second oldest. Second oldest. Yeah. Okay. I have older brother, me, younger brother, little sister. Okay. Mixing it up. Are you guys pretty close? Oh, we're so close. We're weirdly close. Weirdly close. Well, define weirdly. What does that mean? Weirdly close. That sounds, you know, if you're close with your siblings, that's that should be a good thing, right? It, I think so. But I do know other people that are like, yeah, it's a little weird that you only hang out with your siblings. I'm like, but they're my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love them the most. Are you guys stair-stepped in terms of age? So between the oldest and the youngest, it's 10 years. And so it's about two to three years. Right. No, in yeah, between. that's like, yeah, that's kind of ideal, I think, in some ways. Well, that's cool. Are they artists too? Or are you the only artist of the family? Only artist in the family. And really out of all the cousins, I'm the only artist as well. Oh. My older brother has a podcast too. Oh, really? Yeah, that's kind of how I got started in that's the podcast. What's his podcast world. about? It's called Stuck in Traffic. It's very inappropriate, but very funny. By the way, I so, I love inappropriate, so I definitely want to check this you out. You would like it. <laughs> Has he been doing that a while? A couple years, and he usually interviews people who are creative, but not just artists, so dancers, comedians, yes. actors, yes. Yes. all of that. Very cool, very cool. So as I said in the intro, you are, as you just alluded to as well, you are a podcaster. I've heard a couple of your episodes. How's it going? How are you feeling about the podcast? It's really good. So I am not someone who naturally likes to talk or talk to other people. Oh, interesting. So it's been- You, you hide it well. You, you fool people. Thank you. It's been great for me to just learn to be comfortable speaking and not being shy about talking to other people. So we started it in February. It's called the Art World Podcast. Yeah. And we interview other artists and kind of like this podcast is all about having fun. Yes. Yes. And your partner in crime, Lisa. Yes. Right. Where is she at today? What's she up to? She is working. So we both work for the city of Santa Clarita. She does events and I do the art side. And so usually during lunch, we'll podcast together <laughs> and then I'll drag her to art shows and make her do art performances with me. Oh my God. So she performed. I wondered if that was her because I've watched a couple of your YouTube uh, videos and I was wondering if, if that was her and I couldn't quite tell. Oh yeah. I drag anyone that is willing to be in a performance. Yeah. I totally take them up on it and force them into doing art performances with me. Oh man, that's that's great. How many performances have you done to date? Ooh. 
That's a really good question. I don't know. I want to say probably about 20, maybe yeah. 25. Must be hard. To, I mean, they must blend in together somewhat over time, right? And I went into grad school as a painter and yeah. left as a performance artist. So it's kind of, I don't want to say new because I've been doing it for about four years yeah. now, but it's new in the scheme of me as an artist. Well, and I wanted to drill down on that a little bit because in preparation for our episode, because you and I met briefly at Art Chair LA, shout out Cheyenne and Art Chair. And I just, you know, it was so fun meeting you because you had the Miss Art World, you know, you had the sash, the sash and, you know, the, you know, everything you were representing your title and we hit it off. It was great. But then when in, in doing research for this little chat today, I watched your presentation. I guess it was your MFA presentation at Pratt. Right. And you were talking about your sort of evolution. But at that time, I was, you were talking about performance art, but clearly you'd done a lot of visual art. But obviously, now, however many years on, I mean, you're f a full on performance artist. I mean, what was that evolution like? I mean, how does one go, you know, from being a, a painter to a performance artist, at least in your case? Yeah. I think it's interesting. I loved, loved grad school because I had great teachers and I, I went to Pratt Institute in New York mm -hmm. and they really pushed me and questioned what I was doing as far as the medium that I was using. Mm -hmm. But I think performance art was a natural progression because I had been doing pageants for such a long time right. and that's very performative. And then even before that, my father <laughs> trained all of us siblings as mimes and we would- Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm not gonna let you skip I don't over this. Share this with most people. Oh, we got some. We got gold today, people. This is hot off the presses. So your dad mm -hmm. trained you and your siblings as mimes. Yes. Okay. Now this implies that your dad is a mime. Yes. Okay. And so if he's teaching his children how to be mimes, he must be a pretty damn good mime. He's excellent. And he so he's he a professional mime? Is this something that he has made money with? Yeah. So when my parents were really young, they worked at the Moore Park Melodrama. I'm not even sure it's there anymore. But my mom was an actress and my dad did lights. And okay. he had one line in a plate that he had to do and uh, forgot it. And so <laughs> yeah. he like challenged himself that, you know, he's going to go on stage during intermission and not speak, but mime. And so then he, from there, he started training as a mime and uh, started making money as a mime and uh, got his four brothers to mime with him. So it's a really weird family thing. This is, by the way, you you and I have chatted a little bit before the show and I learned a little bit about your grandfather and, and I'm hearing more about, you clearly have an awesome family. <laughs> They're pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we can move on, but that's amazing. So now uh, did all of your siblings and you take to this miming? Were you good students? You know, I was probably the shyest mm -hmm. child growing up. So it's really interesting that I'm the one that has really embraced performance art. Yeah. I think my older brother loved miming. He'll he'll even sometimes go out to the pier and mime, do street miming. But we definitely don't continue miming today. We stopped pretty much when we were in college. Well, that's sad. <laughs> well, we so my parents <laughs> just had their anniversary. How many years? Ooh, it was 25 years. Wow, that's great. And so they had a big event. And so we, we did, did mime? a mime performance. <laughs> oh, yes. And I need to put it up love. on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Okay. So you had this miming background as part of your journey here. Okay. And that kind of made pageants easier. So yeah. I did pageants for a long time. And then from there, it just kind of made sense to use performance or use my body in art. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what is performance art? To me, it's using the human body to deliver a concept. And a lot of people think that means that you have to be naked and you have to be doing something kind of weird or out of the box. And for me, it's using the body. You definitely don't have to be naked, but it's conceptual. So there should be some kind of meaning behind what you're doing. And for me, Performance art is so great because I usually don't do a performance over and over. Like I try and do it only once. I don't practice it. It's not a play. And so I'm on this journey with the audience and we're kind of both in this unknown where 
I don't know what's going to happen and they don't know what's going to happen. And so it's this kind of real moment that we're discovering something new together. Yeah. Sort of unfolding in a very sort of honest, organic kind of natural way. And I'm biased, but I feel like it's the purest form of art. Interesting. Why do you feel that way? It's so real. Um, It's not something tangible either. So you can't buy it off of a wall. You have to be there and have to be present in that moment to experience it. And I don't think most other art forms are like that. Right. Right. I'm going to say something and you're going to roll your eyes. But this is part of what I say when people ask me why I go to Burning Man. Like this is kind of what I, a little bit of what I say. It's like part of the joy. And I, by the way, I'm not like one of those annoying Burning Man people that like always wants to talk about Burning Man. I've only been a couple of times, but this is what I'm saying. Like if you're not there, it's so ephemeral, right? Like, like if you're not there, you can't enjoy it and you can't, don't see it. You have to be there. And I, and I think that there is something to be said for that in terms of the integrity. That's why. So I've never been to Burning Man, but it's on my list of things to do because I realize that it. That is kind of, it's an experience. Right. And if you're not there, you can't experience it fully. Yeah, it, it is a performance art sort of piece on a grand scale, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So when I was watching some of the videos, it looked like, so I don't know which one it was. Maybe it was the, well, I think I'm going to answer my own question here because it was the icing take two. So it was the cake uh, you were doing. What was it called? Uh, frosting. Frosting. Mm-hmm. Jeez, sorry. <laughs> you were so close. I was so close, but so far. <laughs> but it looked like you guys were using those sort of uh, icing, what a dispenser is, what are those called when you squeeze out the icing? Icing bags? Bags. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. It could be a proper name. <laughs> right, right, right. So will you be, what's, what's it, tell us about the show coming up. What, you know, is it going to be, how will it be the same or different from some of your other performances? So it's called Sentence to Death. Okay. And it's the first time that it is a solo performance night. So most of the time I'm invited to do performances that are along with another exhibit. Okay. So I go in opening night, do my performance and then leave and the show goes on. Yeah. But this is a one night only. If you miss it, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's only going to have performance art. So I have three different performances planned and they all revolve around the idea of death, but if you know my work, I kind of have this dark humor, dark comedy Mm -hmm. into it. So I have a couple different cool things that are planned. I don't want to give away too much, but I am currently working on this piece. The gallery has a really tall ceiling. And so I'm working on this piece that will attach to a model and it will cover her face and her hair will go all the way up to the ceiling in this Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. And there'll be Barbies and glitter and all kinds of things within it. Yeah. And then so the first performance, I'm going to get on this 30-foot ladder and cut off all her hair. So everything will come out and mm-hmm. fall out. And the piece is called guillotine because I'm oh, cutting okay. off, you know, what a lot of women would see as her beauty sure. is her hair. Sure. Okay. So... We'll tease the audience with that. I won't drill down on that anymore. That's enough. People can come and enjoy the rest and be surprised and excited and uh, and what have you with the mystery. Have you ever lost anyone close to, to you? My grandparents, I've lost a couple grandfathers. I've been really lucky where I haven't lost anyone super, super close. Yeah. But my husband lost his mom and that was really hard yes. to go through because- I didn't know her that well, but having to try and support him in this passing, but he's also a man. And so he expresses his loss differently. And so that's a very delicate. Was that early on in the relationship? You guys have been together how long? We have been together eight years. Eight years. Okay. Yeah. And was that, when was that in your? That was probably, it was right before we got married. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, how hard, how difficult. Yeah. It's just, I ask about it because in part, because death isn't necessarily a theme I would have expected from you. Right. A little bit. It was a, it was a nice surprise. I was like, Ooh, okay. You said, and then you said dark comedy, whatever, but our association around death, or I should say our socialization around death is also personal, right? Like I, and I, I, death touched 
my life very early on. And yet I know like my wife, for example, she's not really, I mean, she, we just lost a dear friend. And I think it was, you know, one of the first times uh, loss has hit so close for her. Her parents are still alive and, and, and well. My parents are still alive and well. But death is a motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's really hard. I think for this performance, and this sounds really light, but it is – so the 28th is my 30th birthday. Okay. So the, Happy birthday. I, thank you. Yay. I, oh, so, <laughs> so we're multiple celebrations. Yes. Yes. But in kind of the world of pageantry or modeling or, you know, women, when you turn 30, you're kind of, I'm doing air quotes, but sentenced to death. Like that is the end of the period where you're attractive and beauty and all you're that stuff. You're not fertile anymore. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like you, most of the cutoff age of pageants is 30. Like you can no longer compete unless oh, wow. you're, you know, married, then they have a whole separate category. But 30 is kind of this end of an era of when you were young and beautiful and wanted. And so the, the idea so of sense. Up. Yeah. It's, so it's kind of that play into I'm 30 and so, so it's more right so it's more of a comment or a critique on this world versus our mortality per se right okay I, yeah I get that wow so you know if what do I know but it, it it seems like a lot of gals get into pageantry work because maybe they're pushed in by their moms oh yeah I don't know mm. if that's true or not but that's my that's from my observation I think that's true for most women Is it was true? not true for me well at that, all. that was my question it's like if, from what I gather you had to convince your mom to let you uh compete yeah my mom was pretty much not into so I when I was born I was naturally feminine like mm-hmm. just pink and glitter and girl's girl girl's girl and my mom was like not into that at all she was like how did how is this half of me so i you know i wanted to be a cheerleader i wanted to do pageants and it was really tough to try and convince her to let me do those things and it was really my dad convincing my mom to say hey i know you're not into this but she is And so you have to support her. And so my mom did a really good job. She would go with me. She'd help me pick out dresses. But it was definitely pulling teeth for her for a while. Yeah. But it's such a fascinating story because you you knew that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. and For some reason that it it was what you were curious about at the time. It was a weird part of my life. So in the fifth grade, I was diagnosed with an eye disease. And what's it called? The disease? Uh, dominant optic optotrophy. Wow. Easy I don't to think say. I'm saying right. it right. Oh, yeah. Well, who can? <laughs> it's a mouthful. Yeah. And then because I was diagnosed, my dad wanted to teach me how to paint. And then I took a art class in junior high. And my teacher said, look, if you can't see, you can't be an artist. Stop doing art. And at that same period, there were pageants advertised at my school. And so that was kind of like, well, if I can't do art, let me try this. And it was the start of something that was really interesting to me. Yeah. I'll let experts sort of discern, you know, the psychology behind, you know, how the performance of that led you to your performance art now. How many years did you compete? So I started competing when I was 12 and I have competed ever since then. So my last pageant that I did, I was actually in grad school Mm -hmm. and I was making work about being a feminist and feminine. And my grad teacher said, look, you are thinking about pageantry different because I was more critiquing it within my work. And so she said, now that you're thinking about it differently, go and do another pageant and do it for research. And then I won that pageant, which (laughs) was the (laughs) Miss New York World pageant. And she thought it was hysterical. She was like, there's no way in hell that I thought you were going to win. And I was like, I know. Thank you. And so then I was forced to go on to um, nationals. And I used all of that research to do my thesis show for (laughs) grad school. It was great. But that was the last pageant that I've done. So I've been competing for a long time. So clearly your intelligence must be your secret weapon. 
Uh, I mean, because it's a, pa- it's a, it's a, you know, what do I know? Right. But like, I'm just, you know, it's a pageant of beautiful women. So like, okay, fine. Beauty's a constant or whatever, mm. but I'm guessing the judges are also discerning based on talent and skill and intelligence and those things. Why do you think you, you won? That's a really great question. I think, so a lot of pageant women are super smart and super talented. And most people don't understand that these women- So I just women, made a really bad generalization. <laughs> Stereotype, sorry. I mean, they're just incredibly impressive. And I think most people don't um, realize that. I think part of the times that I've won is, I think in pageants, they're looking for someone who is real and has- uh, related because you're going out and you're in the community and you're doing fundraising events, and so they are looking for someone that has a a good heart and integrity, also, authenticity. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Character. Yes. So I encourage everyone if you see a pageant girl and you think that she's going to be mean or stuck up or whatever, she's probably the nicest person you'll right. ever meet. Right. So can you teach me the wave? Like, how is yeah. the wave? <laughs> you gotta like, move your elbow a little bit more. Well, oh, okay. Yeah. So just, okay. If, if our viewers could see us now. Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. I think your future is in pageantry. Oh my God. Oh, don't, you know, thank you. I've been wondering about a career change. <laughs> That's fantastic. So what was your talent? So I actually played the heart. Wait, miming? Let me. <laughs> I, you know, it should have been miming. I would have been, that would have been a statement to go on stage <laughs> as a mime. You have to do another pageant for research and your talent has to be miming. I really should do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so okay. So that's in the future. What did, what, what was your talent in the past? I play the harp you as play well. play the harp? Mm-hmm. Wow. See, look at that. Okay. Layers on layers on layers. When did you, how old were you when you started playing the harp? Uh, around 14 when I realized if, Hey, if I'm going to do a pageant, I need a talent. Right. Right. So why, why the harp? I've always been kind of a Renaissance woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it just seemed like a really unique instrument to learn how to play. Yeah. So you have a big harp at home? Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Apparently harps come smaller size too, I guess. Yeah. Like travel size harps. Those aren't as good because they don't have the same amount of strings. So I have a big harp that has a good amount of strings and and different levers Mm -hmm. at the top so I can adjust them. So have you, will you ever incorporate your harp into your performance art or have you? I have not. It's a really good thing to think about. Okay. Well, because then is it just a concert? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and for some reason, a lot of my performance art ends up with me destroying something like. Right. And so I, uh, harp is very expensive. Yes. You do not want to destroy the harp. Although that would be amazing. (laughs) Just like a sledgehammer in the harp. (laughs) <laughs> or something. So you're so fascinating. I just, yeah, I so appreciate, you know, one of the things that, you know, you can tell me to fuck off if you don't want to talk about it. But part of the reason why I want to bring it up is, and I'll just share before I set it up, it's just, so I was a super sick kid, you know, damn near died a couple of times, but um, ended up being too stubborn to die. But I managed to lose the hearing in my left ear. So I have been essentially deaf. My wife would say dumb too, but I've been deaf in my left ear my whole life and in a large part of lost a lot of hearing also in my right ear. So um, there's a good chance in my future, I will lose my hearing. You were diagnosed with the eye disease at an older, how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was, uh, I think 11. 11. Okay. So I lost my hearing, I guess when I was almost two. So it's kind of just been something, right? That you live with and you adapt to what have you. It must've been very hard at your age to be diagnosed. What was that like for you? Well, before I answer your question, can you share what- Happy to. I had spinal meningitis. I was unconscious for about six days. If it doesn't kill you, it usually will take, you know, your eyes or your ears or your legs or, you know. So I was very fortunate to lose hearing only in one ear and not both ears. So I had spinal meningitis when I was 11 months old. Then I had Meniere's disease when I was around two, I was one of the youngest uh, kids or uh, people ever diagnosed with, with Meniere's disease. Typically, it, it attacks or uh, senior citizens tend to get Meniere's disease. Babies don't tend to get Meniere's disease or toddlers. So that was very unusual. And then I had pneumonia uh, t- 10 times over 10 years. So every oh year gosh. I had pneumonia until I was 10. So from age zero to 10, I was just a f- sick kid. You know what I mean? Uh, after 10, I've been great except for a few hangovers. You know what I mean? Like okay. it's, been, you know, it's been a much better ride after I turned 10. So I don't know. 
you know, what happened, but clearly, you know, the first 10 years were pretty rough, you know, so it is what it is, right? These things make us stronger, hopefully, and better. And so when I heard your story, I was just moved because clearly, you know, that's a life-changing event. Yeah. And there's always the chance like you that I could lose my vision fully or it will progressively get worse as I get older. Like my grandpa has it. And so I can kind of see what he is dealing with now. And so it is sort of genetic or. Yeah, yeah. it's weird. It skips every other generation. So my kids won't have it, but their kids will most likely have it. And my grandpa is actually an artist too. Oh, wow. And so he's the only one that has it. And I'm the only one that has it. And we're both the artists in the family. So I think it's, it's actually become more difficult, I think, as I've gotten older and have kind of seen my own what's the word it's like things that you can't do like my own limitations because as a kid you go okay I can't see very well whatever I'm gonna go play but now as someone who's working full-time and really has to deal with not having very good vision and not having it correctable so I can't have glasses I can't have contacts to correct it it's just something that I live with I've moved past it affecting my art. That was just, you know, something that I've dealt with. And I know as an artist that it doesn't affect the work that I'm doing. But I think the biggest fear is seeing how it might affect me professionally or, you know, there will become a point where I can't drive. And so I need to rely on somebody else to drive me to openings. And that's going to be really hard to lose that kind of independence. Yes, yes. Yeah. So were you able to get, I mean, to the extent that you've, you've gotten to a place of acceptance, was that through hard work and therapy? Was that just through the love of your family? Was that through blood, sweat and tears on your own? Like how, how did you work through that? So the teacher that kind of affected me was in junior high and it wasn't until probably senior year of high school when something clicked. And I realized it was the moment that I realized that not all adults are right. Yes. That there's yes. a lot of Yes. Them. yes. <laughs> that is a true statement. Yeah. Right? yeah. And it was just like, oh, just because you're How liberating, a, right? Yeah. It was amazing. And so I think I realized, oh, this teacher was wrong yeah. and an asshole. Yeah. And and you know, I've always had to deal with my eyesight because I needed large print textbooks. I needed to sit in front of the class and yeah. there are a lot of teachers that didn't want to get so it was always this fight. Yeah. Um, And my parents were always willing to fight for me to get the accommodations that I needed. So realizing that I can fight for what I need and adults are wrong sometimes. And then I just started painting and I I wouldn't, I did not put a paintbrush down for years. Like I was just all into art after that. Yeah. Well, good for you. No, I I know. It's really weird when you realize adults are human beings too. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I remember that vividly as well. And for me, I guess it was maybe more within the context of my parents. Like, you know, you idolize your parents and then one day you realize like, oh, right. They're just, you know, they're just, you know, human beings too. And they're doing their best, but they don't know it all, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're like, oh no, you're wrong. That's it's just, it was just such a clear I just remember it so clearly like the click in my head that they don't know everything yeah. and I can decide things for myself. Well, I and I'm trying to forgive my parents because uh, my art teacher told them in 3rd grade that I had talent and they should find me an art teacher, a private art teacher and my parents in their, you know, very practical Midwestern sensibility said, uh, oh no, it's just a phase. Oh no. <laughs> so you could have been like this huge, I was going to be huge artist. I, I could have, I was going to be, and they ruined it. Gosh, darn those parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is something. And I, you know, I don't know you well, but I'm guessing I'm willing to bet that, uh, well, I'm just going to say it this way. Uh, my sense is that you're way too classy of a person to have done this, but I have to ask, did you ever circle back to that art teacher and tell them how wrong they were? Uh, you know what? I probably would have, but he actually was fired. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. So I have that, uh, you know, yes. justification. The universe took care of it. Yeah. There, it was like, hey, we'll handle this for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, I mean, good teachers are so hard 
to find, right? Well, I mean, and art is so hard too because yeah. you have to be, you have to, you want to critique your students, but yeah. to say something like that, especially to a junior high right. child, like it stuck with me for a long time. Well, and by the way, if you really understand art, how could you ever utter such a statement? Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, there's so many artists and musicians that have dealt with yes, yes, uh, physical yes. disabilities and have grown and even become masters because, yeah. of, because of it. So it was just something that was a stupid thing to say. It's a really <laughs> stupid thing, you know. And how many other lives, I mean, you know, how many other kids did he, you know, how many other spirits did he kill? Exactly. Right? That's my biggest fear when I'm teaching classes. Like, I don't want to ever affect a child yeah. so much that they stop making art. Right. Yeah, man. Good, good teachers are so hard. You know, I was talking to somebody, or I should say good teachers are rare. That's what I mean to say, especially when they're not paid, you know, you know what they're worth and everything. I was talking to somebody the other day about one of my favorite teachers, Mr. Still, and Mr. Still who was my fifth grade social studies teacher and my fifth grade math teacher. And he taught social studies essentially by showing slides of his world travels with his wife. So he and his wife would go all over the world and, you know, these exotic places. And then he would bring these photos back and he would, you know, show us the world through his slides and his travels. And of course, you know, we had textbooks and whatnot, but you know, the, these photos for me being a visual person really brought the world to life and instilled in me a wanderlust that uh, was already there. So he was just awesome. You know, I always look back on Mr. Still and think highly of him. Well, the cool thing was that in 19, I guess it was 92, I was actually invited back to my elementary school to give a presentation about an expedition that I participated in uh, in near the Arctic for a year and where we lived like Grizzly Adams and, you know, built a cabin and hunted for our meat and, you know, all this stuff. And Mr. Still heard that his former student was coming to speak and he came out of retirement and came to the school and uh, got to watch me oh give my, my slide presentation, <laughs> right? And this was however many years later, right? You know, like from 78 to 93, right? And I got to look at him and hug him and shake his hand and say, I'm here because of you. Yeah. You know, you inspired this, you know, and that's the power of a good teacher. And so, you know, the, you know, the reverse is true, right? I mean, a, a bad teacher can do really, can do real damage. I love how full circle that is, that he was able to see you become the traveler and really know that he had such an impact on you. Like, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I felt that way. Like, I just was honored to be able to tell him thank you, you know? Yeah, so it's great. And, you know, I was having a conversation earlier, though, about schools these days and the arts programs that are being defunded. I am who I am because I mean, because I you know we're both public school guys we're kids we just established <laughs> that a minute ago I don't know about your school but I know my school had a you know a healthy budget when it came to the arts I mean yes we had yours had a healthy bu budget yeah. wow yeah so yes different time <laughs> so you're grappling with something different these days so growing up in the Midwest outside Chicago 70s and 80s I graduated high school 88 you know the economy was relatively good we had a good tax base it was a working class you know kind of community. But our school uh, had a robust budget, not just for academics and sports, but for art. So we had, you know, like I had jazz band, you know, symphonic orchestra, jazz band. We had thespians and theater. We had, uh, you know, arts and, you know, we had a gallery in the school. We had, you know what I mean? It was just like really robust. And, you know, it was, a, it was the way I describe it. It was a, it was a very strong liberal arts program, right, at the school. So I am who I am because of that. Right. And we're living in a time now where, you know, these budgets are, are getting cut. And so, you know, what's what are these kids going to do? Yeah. And really, if they are not introduced to art through their family, yeah. then they're going to have to wait way later in life to hopefully stumble into a museum or a gallery yeah. and then discover how important art is. I did not grow up with a robust art program. Uh, 
we couldn't even have lunch in the cafeteria because oh, wow. it had mold in it and we had no theater. And so I am extremely lucky that my father was a painter and yes. that we just had this love and appreciation for art. But it is horrible to think that kids won't have that. Yeah. And moving forward, it's so important for kids to learn not just art, but just how to create, like to have a creative mind. Yes. So I think one of the number one things that businesses are looking for is creative people. Absolutely. My God, I was just <laughs> a friend of mine, friend of mine who I, I say friend, he's, he's, you know, 20 years my junior, but I've known him since he's a kid and, and we've sort of, you know, I don't know, he's, you know, mentored him a little bit here and there, but um, he was so proud to tell me recently that he got accepted to business school. He was going to get his MBA. And when he saw my kind of sober reaction, he was, you know, sort of disappointed. He said, I, th I thought you'd be more excited. I'm just like, honestly, the last world, the last thing the world needs right now is another MBA, you know? So if you'd asked me ahead of time, I would have told you to go to art school or get, go to design school because I feel like the problems facing mankind are not going to be solved by the same old thinking, the same old degrees, because by the way, MBA has got us in this fucking problem to begin with, but don't get me started. My husband is a traffic engineer. So he and enjoys jokes where it's like, you know, three people are in a boat and the boat's sinking and, you know, one's an artist, one's a engineer and one's, I don't know, a scientist. And they're like, who do you get rid of? And of course, it's always the artist. And it, was, it blows my mind because I'm like, that's the person I would keep. That's the one that can think outside of the box to solve the leaking boat. Yes, yes, yes. It's so true. Well, so there are organizations that are working hard, right, to try to keep the arts funded to help, you know, these schools, these kids get the arts education that they need. American for the Arts is perhaps one of those organizations. I saw that you spoke just recently at the national conference in Minneapolis, I believe it was. What was that like? It was amazing. That was my first time going to the conference. So I'd gone before to their arts marketing conference. So I work for the city of Santa Clarita and I run their civic and public art programs. And so what is amazing about Santa Clarita is they have put in a lot of money for funding the arts in all different ways, in education, in public art. And so I was invited to go and speak about public art for suburbs. So we're not LA, we're a family town that isn't necessarily artsy people. And so my job is to educate people in the nicest, safest environment to say, arts for everyone, and this is how to bring in new and creative, innovative pieces to a community that doesn't necessarily appreciate art. And so it was an amazing experience to be able to speak about that and to be in a room that has a bunch of people that are fighting for the same cause yeah. throughout the U.S. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, the so-called experts uh, a few years ago, you know, were so excited about, you know, st uh, STEM programming. And, you know, finally somebody looked up and realized, oh, wait a minute, we forgot the A <laughs> for the art. So now it's STEAM. Exactly. Right. It's like, really? Really? How'd you forget about us? I mean, my God, that just, you know, wow, that's really symptomatic of a much bigger problem, right? Well, are you familiar with uh, the book Orbiting the Giant Hairball? No. Okay. So you'd probably love it. It's written by a guy by the name of Gordon McKenzie. And Gordon was, uh, for many years, I, I don't know if he still is, but for many years, uh, he was the chief creative officer for Hallmark Cards. So he wrote Orbiting the Giant Hairball, which isn't a big book, it's, but it's, it's, a, it's a great book. And it's fundamentally about how do you maintain your artistic integrity working in a corporate environment, right? But he tells this very poignant sort of tragic uh, story about, you know, his talks that he gives to students, you know, so he'll go and, you know, to give back and he'll go talk about art and creativity at, you know, elementary schools, high schools, so on and so forth. And he um, starts every talk basically with the same question, which is, who here is an artist? And so, of course, in kindergarten, every kid raises their hand, right? You know where this is going, right? So, literally, each year, and by, you know, it just gets less and less. And by the third grade, you know, he said, one kid in the back, 
you know, is brave enough to like raise their hand that, oh yeah, I'm an artist, you know? And it's like, what the hell are we doing? You know, why is it that we are, we've created a system that literally, you know, uh, squeezes that out of us somehow? Or even there's always the, oh, you're an artist, you work at McDonald's type of thing. Like there's no career for an artist to actually make money, which is completely ridiculous. But just having that mentality of, oh, go get a real job. You know, you you can't make any money. You're not going to be a productive member of society if you're an artist. Like all of that, I think, definitely affects children and what they're wanting to pursue as a an adult. And so we kind of beat art out of kids. And actually, keeping the arts in schools was my platform Mm -hmm. in pageantry. So I'd go into schools and talk to kids about why it's so important to be an artist and to claim that and stay creative and to pursue careers in the arts. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So tell me more about the Americans for the Arts and the conference and how that was for you. What did you talk about? So I talked about how to bring in the public art into a community that doesn't necessarily appreciate art. And what's interesting is every community does it differently. So as a staff person, I actually don't get to pick any art pieces. It's all done by um, committee. Mm -hmm. And so what I talked about is kind of the, the process that we use in the city as far as government and picking art, which is always interesting being on the government side yeah. and on the art side and how they, how do those kind of mix in together. And then also how to work with artists because most people in government aren't artists or don't know how to work with a creative person. Yeah. And so kind of strategies on keeping a creative minded person on track or how to work with them with contracts and uh, timelines. So all of that was really uh, a part of the the talk. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to what you and I were discussing earlier about sort of failure of arts programs and art schools and design schools to teach the kind of the, the business side of things, whether it is contracts or time management, project management. You know, it, it's amazing to me, you know, that, that so many amazingly talented, brilliant, intelligent artists are so inept. <laughs> they <laughs> are. And you're like, but you're a genius. Yeah. But you literally can't answer email. It's amazing. Right. But I think what has really helped me as far as being an artist and business minded is working in you know, I worked as a gallery manager and so I worked with artists and realized, okay, this is a mistake. As an artist, I should not do this. Like I learned a lot about being an artist by working in a gallery setting, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, because I guess, well, as a gallery operator, right? I mean, you're <laughs> you're you're dealing with that uh inefficiency or that bottleneck very real way. Yeah. Right. If the artist doesn't return your email and yet, you know, I don't know. Tell me some horror stories. Oh my gosh. Uh, There's one artist who, when an artist has a solo show or is maybe like in a three person show, I understand as an artist being so focused on it because it's your life. This is your work. You want it to be amazing. And so I had one artist bringing all of his pieces and he had about 40 And with the gallery, we always had a curator come in and they would hang the show. And this helped because a lot of artists can't curate their own work. They can't edit out the work that's not needed and they can't hang it because if they hang it, most of the time it's overpacked. And so we told the artist to leave. He already knew he had to leave. We hung the show. He came back and hated it, hated it and just threw a tizzy fit, like through his camera, broke his camera, was just having kind of a a breakdown. And so I ended up having to ask him to leave. We ended up having to have a sit down talk about, you know, appropriate behavior because when he was kind of freaking out, it was me and him in the gallery and I'm a woman and he's a man and he's throwing things. And so I felt very uncomfortable. He's being violent. Yes. And so, um, it ended up working out fine, but it was one of those stories that I was I was thinking I'm going to have to call the police yeah. 
we're going to cancel his show, but we were able to work it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. So, well, first of all, I'm sorry that happened to you. That sucks on a lot of levels, you know, but I mean, also to be fair, right, to artists, temperamental artists, I mean, like assholes are everywhere and in every industry, right? Like, you know, like while I'm listening to this, I'm thinking like, you know, it's not, it's not acceptable for artists to be assholes, but you know what? It's not acceptable for anybody to be an asshole. Right. And, and there are just assholes out there and that's fucked up no matter what. Right. But I mean, what gets me, and that's an exception, right? Let's be fair. Right. Like that, you know, temperamental, I mean, yeah, sure. There are temperamental artists and unprofessional artists, but for the most part, it ends up being like artists that, that are, that are, you know, they, they don't want to read a contract. They don't want to sign a contract. They don't want to return an email. They don't want to manage money. They think that they're above it or that money's not important or that, you know, and, and it's like, it's like, uh, we, well, we, we were talking about the uh, conference, our conference, the not real art conference for creators earlier in the spring. And, um, one of the things that I said, you know, on the stage, it's like, it's like, it is perfectly to me, my, my two cents, but it is perfectly acceptable for you to be antisocial. Like if you don't want to go to network and go to gallery openings and be social and talk to strangers and make small talk, that's fine. But what's unacceptable is for you to be inarticulate about your work when someone asks you. Heck yeah. Like I completely agree with you. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that should be like the moment when you shine, you know, you can just stand there and be the antisocial artist in the corner and that'll stoke the aura of the, of your art and maybe, you know, increase your prices. <laughs> but, but when somebody comes and asks you about your art, that's your moment to shine. If you can't talk proudly and boldly and confidently about your work, why should you expect anybody to buy it? Yeah. I think the biggest struggle that an artist has is you have to believe in your artwork. Yeah. Like, you have to be your number one fan. And if you're not, then nobody else is going to believe in your work. And so I agree with you. It, and, you know, I I get upset when I ask an artist about their work because we do the podcast. And some have really critically thought about why they're making art, what they're using, what the message is. And even if it's abstract, you can definitely tell when an artist has really thought about what their role is and why they're creating. And there's some artists that haven't thought about that. And I think it's really important for artists to really think about why they're doing something so that they can communicate that with others. And I know it's not always fair to expect an artist to to be able to talk and write about their work because they're naturally communicators visually. Yeah. But you, if you want to have people become supporters of your work or at least understand what you're trying to do, you have to be able to figure out different ways to communicate that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I, that's one of the things I've been thinking about the, cause we have the conference coming up in the spring, right? So I've been starting to think about the programming for next spring and how it's going to be different. Is there, will we have any, you know, will we bring anything back or not? Probably not. We want it to be fresh. But it was funny, I was talking to this artist and I was saying, well, you know, I was trying to do a little bit of a you know, focus group of one, right? And I was talking to the artist, I was saying, well, what would be meaningful to you in terms of programming? I said, I feel like maybe there would be some useful, some utility in having some programming around negotiating a contract or, 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 or negotiating a deal or, you know, you know, what have you. And he said, he goes, he goes, well, he goes, that'd be great if we knew how to communicate. Why don't you just start with some basic communication program? <laughs> and I said, you know what? Good point. You know, <laughs> like, That's a super honest. it's a super honest and cynical thing, but it's true. I mean, look, I mean, the tr to be fair, right? I mean, good storytelling is a skill and an art form. And, you know, if you can't tell your own story, then you're probably fucked, but you should be able to tell your own story. But there are some real best practices and tenets around good communication, good storytelling. And um, so anyway, so we're, we're thinking about that in terms of how we can translate that in terms of, you know, helping artists communicate better. Cause you know, and my whole thing too, is like, if you call yourself a professional artist, be professional. It's not, it's a very low bar to say, I'm a professional artist because I sell my work. You know, that's like the lowest bar, you know, um, but if you're, if you're truly a professional artist, then, you know, you should be 
acting professionally. <laughs> well, and I think there's strategy. So I, I was saying earlier that um, I'm not a natural talkative person. And so one strategy that I've really, that has helped me is I'm comfortable talking about my work with certain people. So uh, for example, my father, my mom, and my husband, and of course my sibling, so my family. And so I'll talk to them, they'll give me critiques and criticism, but what has been extremely helpful is listening to them talk about my work with other people. So I'll be at a gallery and my husband will get into a conversation and he'll be explaining my work to other people. And that has helped me so much kind of because it's sometimes difficult to- 100%. You're too close to it. Exactly. Right. I totally get that. And to to even go to the point where I'm like writing down what he's saying so that I can really think about it and maybe even use that in my artist statement. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I so appreciate what you're saying because that's a critical point. You're making. I mean- Sometimes we're just too close to be objective, right? Sometimes it's the old saying about too close to the fire to see the flames or whatever, right? Like, and so that's a really good technique for what you're saying. It's like, listen to other people, how they describe it, you know, because sometimes they're going to do it better than you, or they have that perspective that just gives you fresh words or new, new language that brings it to life, right? In a way. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to be critical, isn't it? <laughs> so easy. One of uh, Lisa, my co-host for the podcast. Shout out Lisa. Yeah. Uh, one of our favorite games, and we're, you know, terrible people for doing this, but our favorite game <laughs> yeah, is you're when, horrible. Yeah, when we go into uh, gallery shows or exhibits or whatever, mm-hmm. our favorite game is to walk around to each piece and then critique it. Yeah. Like, and it could be about the concept or most of the time it's about the technique. Like, mm-hmm. oh, look at that ear. That ear is not a good ear or <laughs> that hand. Just because if it's done poorly, it's distracting. Yeah. But that's one of our favorite games. And then we feel like assholes. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know. Well, it, and this sort of opens up a whole new, you know, kind of area to talk about just in terms of, you know, how art resonates, you know, for me, I mean, I, I don't have my MFA to be able to deconstruct a piece and sort of critique it or discuss it with, within the context of history or what have you. I mean, a lot of artists can't even fucking do that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, in terms of understanding art history or where it sort of where their work sets up, but, but I, I do love sort of going in front of a piece and, and starting with how it makes me feel. Right. And I say this not for your benefit or my benefit, but because you know, for the listener out there who may be intimidated or whatever, right? And, you know, the reality is this is a, art is about emotion, in my view, right? Art is about emotion. Art is about energy. And you should surround yourself with art that makes you feel good or makes you feel something. <laughs> you know, hopefully it's it's joy or, or pleasure in some way. And we're in my office right now here. And I was, you know, inevitably, you know, it's interesting. People will point to things and say, oh, you know, that's a great piece of art. And, you know, where'd you get that? And I'll be like, yeah, I got that at a garage sale for five bucks. Oh, my gosh. Right. And it's just about. You know, I think so much is about, well, what is, what speaks to you, you know, but to your original point, like, you know, these technique, context, thinking, you know, the weak links can really stand out sometimes. What is the weak link in your work right now? I think a lot of artists are critical of their own work. There's a couple different things that I really feel like I need to work on. Um, A lot of that is communicating with the audience. Mm. I did an interview with a another performance artist, Kate Durbin, and she called it passive aggressive performance art is where you don't talk to the audience at all. It's like you ignore them. They're not in the room. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's like all my art pieces because I'm too afraid to engage with the audience. And so I take them out of the equation. And so I think I really need to, that's my next goal for myself is to kind of bring them in or like force myself. To, I mean, even to verbally speak in my performances, I, I literally don't do. And so that's something I need to work on. And then I, I think I'm thinking about this more, but my concept is so important that sometimes I forget about the aesthetics and it's still visual art. So that's something that I need to still think about within the context of um, a performance piece. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to think about because of course, you know, your, whether it's your pageantry experience or, 
you know, doing the work that you do in government, what have you. I mean, clearly talking to people and engaging your audience is a skill set that you have. It's interesting that you have decided to sort of sequester that skill set over here as you're like, you know, focusing on your art. And now the new challenge is that you got to somehow combine those two in a way that feels right. Yeah, definitely. That's going to be my biggest tr- challenge. So how are you going to address that in the show coming up on the uh, 27th? I'm going to address it after that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, more to come, more to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, you know, it's a process, right? Like, you know, you know what you got to do and now you just got to figure out how to do it in a way that works for you. Yeah, that's great. Miss Hartworld, it's such a joy to sit down with you. Oh, this was great. I had so much fun. I have to confess, I was wondering if you would show up with the with the sash and the and the hair. And... I have my sash on right now. Oh, oh, of course you do. Yes, I'm sorry. No I'm just trying to that. fool no. the audience here. No, I uh, I always carry it with me. Not with me. I don't have it with me, but I have it in the car just in case. But no. So that's a question. Okay. So why not now? Why, why, what, what is, what's the criteria by which you decide to put it on? When I was explaining this to people, I was saying that Miss Art World is a lifelong performance piece that I'm challenging myself to do. So a lot of people think it's a, a persona, like I'm a character. Mm. It's not a character. It's me, but forcing myself to take ownership of being an independent, beautiful woman and giving myself the ability to do, wear, be who I want through this channel. And so for me, when I was coming up with this concept, anything, any art event related, I'd have to go as Miss Art World. And I know that sounds silly, but it's extremely hard being a shy person to go to a gallery reception and force myself to wear the sash because I'm opening myself up to criticism. Like, who is she? Why is she calling herself Miss Art World? Like, how dare she? Exactly. You know, she not nominated or gave her- Self-proclaimed. Exactly. So it's like, how dare she? I think a a lot of women don't take ownership of their body and say, no, no, I am allowed to say like, I am beautiful. I am smart. I am strong. And so this is my outlet to force myself to do that. Well, and it's interesting too, because if, you know, we're living in this sort of shaming culture of shaming and I could see how, you know, the quote unquote, the regular suspects of the art world would look at a a beautiful person who comes into a gallery setting and judge them, right? Well, oh, they're beautiful. So they can't be smart or, or they're beautiful because, or they, you know, they must not know art. What, what are they here for? Why did they go the wrong party? Right. And then what I love about what you do is you double down, right. And, and put a sash on and say, no, yes, I'm beautiful, but I'm also Miss Art World. Right. And so it, you, I don't know if this is part of your intent, but what I like about it is you, you're actually holding a mirror up, whether they realize it or not to their own bias and prejudice and what's the other word, but you know, all those words. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. And it's something that I will, I'm challenging myself now and now it's being recorded. So (laughs) (laughs) I have to do it. It's on the record. You know, when I'm 80 years old, I still want to be able to go out as Miss Art World. You know, I'm married. So a lot of people have asked me, why am I not Mrs. Art World? And for me, a, a lot of my work thinks about feminist ideas. And so men are Mr. their whole life and women, you know, they're Miss, Mrs. because of marriage. And I don't feel like I need to change because I'm now married. So it will remain Mrs. forever until I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if a competing artist will uh, will show up one time with Mrs. Art World and then (laughs) (laughs) it's a face off. It's a throw down. By the way, that's a good concept for the next art performance. Uh, Miss Art World and Mrs. Art World going at it. Yeah. I've actually had women ask me if they can be like Mrs. Art World Bakersfield or Mrs. Art World Kentucky. And I'm like, well, that's a that's an interesting concept. <laughs> By the way, this yeah, this is this this is gives you opportunity to expand the franchise, mm-hmm. as they say. <laughs> There'll be a bunch of Miss Art Worlds running around. Oh at some my point. god. Oh my god. It's a takeover. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. That's great. Well, Catherine, Miss Art World, before we sign off, and this has been fantastic 
Thank you for coming. Please come back. Will you come back? Of course. Yay. Maybe Lisa will come next time. Yes. And we're going to have you on our podcast as well. Yeah, I look forward to that. So tell our listeners one last time about your upcoming show and podcast and your socials and where they can find you. Okay. So you can find me, missartworld.com, Instagram, missartworld. Podcast is artworldpodcast on Instagram. We also have a website, which you can find it on the Art World Podcast. And my show is September 27th. It's a Friday. Starts at 7.30. And it is at Studio Channel Islands Art Center in Camarillo. Fantastic. Well, I'll see you there. Great. Thank you so much. You got it. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at Not Real Artificial. We appreciate the support. Sourdough, out.